are spending, uh, every week we're spending time going through a different book of the Bible. So Genesis to Revelation. Reason why we're doing that is because having talked with a lot of you, some of you have a story similar to mine where you did not grow up in the church. And so, you know, like my freshman year of Bible college, when my professor gave us a pop quiz, he said, tomorrow we're going we're gonna to do a pop quiz. We're going to write out all 66 books of the Bible. So come ready to write it out. I'm just going to give you a blank sheet of paper and you're going to be graded on not just are they in order, but did you spell them correctly? I was freaking out because I never went to VBS. I didn't have any Sunday school experience. Every other kid in the room had a song that they had memorized. You guys know about this song, the books of the Bible song, some of you, yes? See, some of you are like me. You're like, what is that? And so then I tried learning that for a couple hours. I was like, well, I'm 18 years old. That's not going to work. Uh, apparently, I can't learn songs uh, overnight. And so literally, I was speaking into an old school tape recorder and then playing it back to myself while I wrote out the books of the Bible, just so I could get it in my head that this is, is kind of not just the story, but here are the pieces of the story that my professors are saying that I believe is the true story of the world. And, and so I know a lot of you, you've not spent much time soaking in these different books, and that's okay. That's completely okay, and I think most of the people outside of this room, if you ask them to name as many books as they possibly could, yeah, it's laughable because it's just not, it's not something that our culture values, which is the Word of God. It's something that at an early age, maybe you don't know this, the Jewish people at an early age, they would, they would soak tablets of the Bible with honey. They'd put honey on it. And then they would let little kids, as they learn scripture, lick the tablets and read it so that they would associate from a little, like little ages, that they would associate the word of God is sweeter than honey. You know that psalm? The word of God is sweeter than honey. And then that's how they would start to memorize. And then a lot of them would memorize Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers and Deuteronomy before they were 12 years old. Word for word, they would memorize it. And for us, I'm just trying to get us a broad, like, paint stroke across, like, here's kind of the overarching story, okay? So just to catch you up, let's look at this video. Okay, it's just a minute long on the book of Joshua. The book of Joshua. Let's back up and remember the story so far. So God chose Abraham, and then his family became the people of Israel, who are then enslaved down in Egypt. And so through Moses, God rescued Israel out of Egypt. He made a covenant with them at Mount Sinai, and he brought them through the wilderness. So Israel then camped outside the promised land, and Moses called them to obey God's commands so that they could show all the other nations what God is like. The book of Joshua picks up right after Moses has died, and Israel's ready to enter the land. So the story of Joshua is designed with four main movements. Joshua first leads Israel into the promised land. And then once they're there, they meet all this hostility from the Canaanites. And so they engage them in battle. Then after their victories, Joshua divides up the promised land as the inheritance for the 12 tribes. And then the book concludes with these final speeches that Joshua gives to the people. So let's dive in and we'll see how all of it flows together. Let's dive in. Stay in Joshua 1. I'm going to read the last few verses of Deuteronomy because I find them really helpful leading into the story of Joshua. Okay? So this is the last 
few verses of Deuteronomy, and then I'll go right into Joshua 1. It says, Now Joshua, son of Nun, he was full of the spirit and wisdom, for Moses had laid his hands on him. And so the people of Israel obeyed him, doing just as the Lord had commanded Moses. There's never been another prophet in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. The Lord sent him to perform a bunch of miraculous signs and wonders in the land of Egypt against Pharaoh and all his servants in his entire land. With mighty power, Moses performed terrifying acts in the sight of all Israel. Next verse, Joshua 1. After the death of Moses, the Lord's servant, the Lord spoke to Joshua, son of Nun, Moses' assistant. He said, Moses, my servant, is dead. Therefore, the time has come for you, Joshua, to lead these people, the Israelites, across the Jordan River into the land that I'm giving them. I promise you what I promised Moses. Wherever you set foot, you will be given land that I have given you. From the Negev wilderness in the south to the Lebanon mountains in the north, from the Euphrates River in the east to the Mediterranean Sea in the west including all the land of the Hittites. No one will be able to stand against you as long as you live. For I will be with you as I was with Moses. I will not fail you or abandon you. So Joshua, be strong and courageous. For you are the one who will lead these people to possess all the land I swore to their ancestors I would give them. Be strong and very courageous. Be careful to obey all the instructions Moses gave you. Do not deviate from them, turning either to the right or to the left. Then you will be successful in everything you do. Study this book of instruction continually. Meditate on it day and night so that you will be sure to obey everything written in it. Only then will you prosper and succeed in all that you do. This is my command. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or discouraged. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. So, I was trying to think of how can I possibly describe to us as a church family how huge of a moment this is in Joshua chapter 1. This is the best I came up with. United States is about how old right now? About 250 years old. You wear this? Okay. I didn't know that. I had to Google that. So, about 247 years old. And we have been living for 250 years-ish in freedom. So imagine if another 250 years went on and 500 years into our nation's history, somebody came, let's just say for the news of it, China, came and they put us in slavery. They said, Colleen, John, you're slaves of ours now. Nikki, you're a slave. Okay, Kristen, you're a slave. Jacob, you're a slave. After 500 years of experiencing freedom, imagine that they displaced us and put us in a land that wasn't our own, and put us into slavery. Can you even go there in your imagination? Can you picture that? Just for a, I mean, it's hard, right? It's really hard to picture that. Okay, so imagine the reverse is happening to Israel. For 500 years, this has been a nation that has been displaced in slavery, and all of a sudden, God is saying to them, hey, trust me, I know that you don't have a lot of weapons. I know that you don't have any military experience whatsoever. I know those people are bigger than you. I know they outnumber you, but trust me, cross this river, and I'm going to give you all this land that is flourishing. I mean, I don't know if you remember the story in Numbers and Exodus, but they bring back grapes like the size of their heads, and they say, this is a land flowing with milk and honey. They bring produce, but then they also say, we are like grasshoppers, and they are like giants. 
And they chose not to go into the land 40 years before this because they were afraid. They were deeply afraid, and understandably so. And if you read the story of Joshua, you're going to see a story of conquest, a story of a lot of war. If you've never read the book of Joshua, let me give you a couple tips as you might read it in the future, okay? Number one, it's really bloody. And it it will, if you're a reader of the New Testament and you have any familiarity with Jesus whatsoever, as somebody who went to the cross and suffered and died, it will bother you as a follower of Jesus, knowing that this is a part of our history as the people of God. It should bother you. God goes, Joshua, enter into this land and fight these people and eliminate them. That, that bothered me the first time I read it. It still bothers me the thousandth time I read it. And a couple things to keep in mind. Number one, that as they went into the land, people were given a chance to repent and recognize that God is God. You see that in the story of Joshua. There are individuals like Rahab who ends up in the genealogy of Jesus. She repents and is then a part of the family of God. There's nations in the book of Joshua that repent. So they are given a chance. That helps me read the book of Joshua. Number two, I don't know how to put this nicely, so I'm just going to say it. The cultures that they're entering into are sacrificing babies. And maybe you don't know that, but you need to know that. As ancient Near Eastern cultures, their gods, like the god of Baal, required them to give their first and best of everything, including their children, so they would take newborn babies and slaughter them in worship and celebrate daily. Hundreds, thousands of babies. They killed them. If you were a young woman and you were pretty at all, you were getting given into sex slavery for the rest of your life till you died. That's the culture that God is saying, you're moving into this. I'm not okay with any of this. I want you to get rid of it. I don't know if that helps you at all. Read the story of Joshua. It helps me contextually to know that the land they're entering into, this is going to be a journey of conquest. And it's also important to notice that God is not just going to transport them from the other side of the river into their houses and just eliminate people with his snap of his fingers. God doesn't transport them. He is more interested, if I can be cute with words, he's more interested in transforming them than he is transporting them. He is. He's more interested in growing a family and a nation of Israel in maturity of faith, which is why he says, as you step into this, wherever you set foot, you're on land that I have given you. But God always works like this. There's a partnership with people that he wants He's not going to force them to step into it. He's saying, no, I've prepared this, but you have some steps to take. Let me just pause for a minute and say, maybe in your life you're waiting for God to transport you when he's more interested in transforming you. Maybe you want out of the pain that you're in in a certain relationship or a certain ailment that you're facing, a certain problem that you're going through. And you're saying, God, why won't you just take me from this place across the river, and just transport me to where I want to go. Because he's more interested in transforming you to be like him in self-giving love than he is your comfortability. And that's a hard pill to swallow. For Americans, when people really understand who God is, that he allows suffering. And he, he allows trials to go through us. And as the book of James says, Consider it pure joy, brothers and sisters, when you face trials of many kinds. Why? 
because it's through that that you develop mature faith. And God worked the same way with the people of Israel. I found this really interesting. When I was reading Joshua 1, there's a lot of yous in Joshua 1. Like, there's a lot of eyes and there's a lot of yous. Like, God is saying, I promise, I promise, I have given, I am, Moses, my servant. You hear a lot of that. But he also says yous. Like, I have given you this land, right? Nobody will be able to stand against you. The first four verses, if you were to read that in the original language in Hebrew, the first four verses are all plural, and five through nine is all singular. God is calling Joshua out. So the first is, I'm going to give you the land, meaning you, plural, the people of Israel, right? And then he's saying in verse five, if I can pick it up there, nobody will be able to stand against you, Joshua, for I will be with you as I was with Moses. He's not speaking to the nation of Israel. There's a personal call, a vocation on the life of Joshua in this moment where God is saying, no, for you personally. And this is huge for a couple reasons. Number one, Joshua's name in Hebrew is Yeshua. Can you guys say Yeshua out loud? It's kind of fun. Yeshua. What does that sound like, the word Yeshua? Does that sound at all like Jesus? Because that's Jesus's name. It's the same name in Hebrew. Yeshua, Yeshua. And so Joshua is this archetype of Jesus. He's going to deliver the people into a new land as Jesus delivers us and rescues us into the kingdom of God. And I truly believe that the words that God gives Joshua in this moment are words that we in 2023 need to hear. Here are the words that God gives him three different times. Be strong and courageous. Number two, be strong and very courageous. Number three, be strong and courageous. Any time in the Bible when you're reading it and you see repetition, that is a massive deal. In the Hebrew language, there is not an exclamation point like we have in English. Their exclamation point is repetition. That's what it is. So when he says three different times to Joshua, verses 5 to 9, which weren't even verses back then, just words of God in the same paragraph, in the same breath, it's almost like God is saying, Joshua, I need you to be strong and courageous. Seriously, Joshua, I need you to be strong and very courageous. Don't miss this. I need you to be strong and very courageous. And when I say those words to you, if I said, insert your name here, be strong and courageous, what do you hear me saying in 2023? When I say be strong, what comes into your mind when you think of strength? What do you think God meant biblically when he said be strong? It's probably different, right? Our view of strength, God's view of strength, our view of courage, his view of courage. So can we just Break that down for a minute because I think it is important. The word strong is this fun word, kazak, and it doesn't mean physically strong. It means to hold on to something firmly, be resolute, be stable. The monks, early Christian history, had a, word, had a, had a phrase that any time they would enter into ministry, they would take first a vow of stability. That's the kind of strength that God is talking about here. Be stable. Hold your ground, Joshua. Don't hold, don't hold on to what the culture is holding on to that you're going to enter into. Hold on to what I have already given you. Don't let go. Be resolute in this. In our culture today, 2023, we live in an escapism culture, do we not? Vows of stability sound ridiculous 
to people around us. Staying in the same place a long time for the sake of staying in a place a long time seems outdated. But let me just challenge us to consider maybe that thing that we're trying to get out of right now is the very thing that God is saying, stay in it. Maybe that friendship that we're trying to get out of, God is saying, no, I want you to stay in that for a while. Maybe the job that we're struggling with, maybe God is saying, I don't want you to escape that. I want you to stay in it. Maybe he's saying, hey, that, that neighbor that just really ticks you off for some reason, they just rub you the wrong way, I want you to stay with them. Stay in it. Don't escape. Don't be like the culture around you. Hold firmly onto that. Endure. Be resolute. Be strong. What could it look like, not just in our life as a church, but your life personally, to be resolute in the things? I think when Jesus says you're to be the light of the world, the salt of the earth, that's the kind of thing that he's talking about. Be resolute. Don't move. Be a stable presence. I like the words of Thomas Friedman when he says, be a non-anxious presence in an anxious world. What could that look like for you in this season? Number two, not just strong, but courageous. Courage in terms of not that you won't have any fear. You ever tried that with yourself? or with little kids, just like, don't be afraid. How does that work? Not very well. Because he's not saying, don't recognize that there is fear. He's saying, have fear under control, Joshua. He's saying, be alert that I'm actually above the things that you are afraid of. And he says, the way you go about developing this strength and this courage, this alertness to my presence is by meditation. Do you see it there? Meditate on my book of instruction, meaning the word of God. Meditate on it day and night. Don't turn from it to the right or the left. Then you will prosper. Later on in the book of Psalms, there's this Psalm chapter 1 sets up the entire Psalm book, and it says, God's people delight in the law of the Lord, the book of instruction. They delight in it. They meditate on it day and night. That's a poetic way of saying they never stop chewing on it. My favorite image for meditation is a dog on a bone. Have you ever seen a dog with a bone? How they have their full attention into it, right? And it's not a one-time thing where they're going to the bone and taking a bite and then leaving it for a while. No, they are gnawing on it until it's gone. You've been around a dog who, who does that to a bone before? That is the image, the Haggah image the gnawing on something image that the psalmist and Joshua are using to talk about meditation. What would it look like if the word of God became the bone in which we gnawed on and were nourished by in our daily life? Isn't that a beautiful image? What could it look like to meditate on the word day and night? What could it look like to become more courageous, more alert, more reflective on the word of God. And we see Jesus' disciples doing this in the New Testament with the person of Jesus. Like Jesus sends them out to do ministry. Mark chapter 6, they come back. It says the apostles return to Jesus from their ministry tour, it calls it. And they told Jesus all they had done and taught. So they're sitting down, imagining around a campfire in the desert of Israel, and they're sharing with Jesus. They're reflecting. They're being alert to, this is what we did. This is how it went. And then Jesus says, hey, let's go find a really quiet place and rest for a while because 
They were so busy doing ministry, it says they didn't have time to eat. They were so busy. Do you ever feel like that? What would it look like for us to become more contemplative, if I can put that word out there? More of a noticing people. In a distracted world, what would it look like for us to become more alert, more focused, more meditative? And I think there's a couple things that we can do. I, I think in the morning is great. I know a lot of you, you've started that. You've started your journey of opening up the word and reading it and then gnawing on it through the day. But if you're like me, morning isn't enough. I get distracted around lunchtime. I need pit stops in my day. And I need at night, I need a reflective time at night. And so I want to offer you just a challenge this week, okay? Simple challenge. It's not hard. It's very accessible. But we've talked about this before. There's a really great app called Lectio 365. 365. Lectio, L-E-C-T-I-O. It's the Latin word for reading. 365. They have one of these every day of the year. They have a morning version that you can literally press play and listen to for nine minutes. And then they have an evening version, a morning and evening. Why do you think they do that? Psalm 1, Joshua 1, the Gospels, where it says Jesus often got away just to be with God and pray. And so what could it look like to become a people that meditate? And I, I know that's a slippery word in our culture because we don't talk about it a lot. So I, I found this definition really helpful, Eden, if you throw that up there. This is Richard Foster, who wrote an incredible book in the 80s that really, I mean, catapulted the spiritual formation movement in our country. But he says this, meditation is listening, it's sensing, it's heeding the life and light of Christ. This comes right to the heart of our faith. The life that pleases God is not a set of religious duties. And some of you still have that mindset of a religion. It's just a set of things that you do. No, true following Jesus is about hearing his voice, his living voice, in the living word, obeying his word. Meditation opens the door to living this way. When I was a sophomore, freshman in high school, I had a really good friend whose parents were missionaries to China, and he knew I was trying to follow Jesus, and he gave me a printed devotional. He bought me one. And he said, hey man, use this as a guide and see, see if it helps in your journey. And I was a really distracted ninth grader. It was hard for me to sit in my room. My best hours were at night as a teenager. And so I would sit in my room and I would try to focus. And I would read it. And, and I'm still this way, 37 years old. I read it and then I realized that I read it, but I didn't listen to it. Does that make sense? I didn't heed it. And so I, then I read it again, and like halfway through, I start thinking about the thing that I've been putting off, right? The distraction, whatever. So then I read it again. And for me, the best thing that's helped me to meditate is not just the repetition, but it's journaling. It's putting it, for me, putting it down on something and writing it out, seeing it. That helps me meditate and become, like Psalm 1 says, a tree that's planted by streams of living water that bears fruit in every season. I don't think that we become like Joshua. I don't think that we become like Jesus without meditation. I think that, that God is inviting his people to grow in strength and courage, true biblical strength and courage, 
through meditation. And as we do that, we're given strength to be resolute and courage to take next steps no matter what the issue is. And I wanted to share this because it's just been very, um, it's been a hard few weeks. I don't know if you guys saw the email I sent out Friday, but like a month ago, we had a family meeting in here and we said, I, I think we might have to shut the doors of Rhythm Community Church. It just doesn't look like it's going to go. It's not sustainable. And when I announced that, the truth is, a lot of the people in this room, a lot of you guys sitting here, you said, with tearful determination, we're going to help keep this thing going. And so you started to give. And outside, I had people call and text that got the email that we sent out that just gave ridiculous this last month thousands and thousands of dollars to say, hey, I'm just going to give you everything we have because the Holy Spirit keeps bothering me with this. So here you go. Here you go. And uh, Mike and I talked probably more than anybody in this room, and Mike and I both were just like, I just don't see how this could be the end. Um, and it seemed like a Joshua 1 moment to me, of like a river moment. How are we going to cross this river? Man, it seems like there's too many enemies to fight. It seems like there's too many oppositions to continuing. And if you would have asked me along the way the last few weeks, do you think we're going to last? Do you not think we're going to last? My honest response would be, I don't know. I honestly don't know. And after three weeks of praying and discerning, noticing, meditating on the word of God, it's clear to me that like, because of you and because of outside help, God is saying, I'm inviting you into another few months, another faith journey. Like if nothing changed in our church, we could last another three to five months. Praise God. But also, he's going to continue to need to show up time and time again. And if you read the book of Joshua, you're going to find very clearly moments when they were meditating and moving forward the mission of God and moments where they forgot. And they had a little bit of spiritual amnesia and they tried to do it themselves. And those are the moments where they lost the battle. And I think the best thing for our community to do and the best thing for us personally to do in the next few weeks is begin to meditate. So here's the challenge. For the next week, whatever it looks like for you, it doesn't have to be Lectio 365. I think that's really helpful. But morning and evening, talk to somebody in this room about it. Say, how's that going? Please don't make me the main police accountable person that's asking, Gina, did you do it? Did you do it? Hold each other lovingly accountable. How are you, how's that going? What are you doing? What are you enjoying? Because did you hear the words of Psalm 1? It's meant to be a delight. It's meant to be enjoyable. So whatever that looks like for you, whatever space that is in your home, however long that is, it's meant to be delightful. And if it is, I believe that God will transform us into a community that is strong and courageous, not for ourselves, but for the sake of those around us. So let me pray, and we're going to take communion where we remember our ultimate example of strength and courage. So let me pray for you, and you can take communion whenever you're ready. Father, thank you for your living word. Thank you that we live in a day and age where we actually have access to your word, that we can meditate on it. We don't just hear it on Sunday and then hold it all week long, but we have access to it on our phones, in the written word, 
And I pray that this week as we begin to experiment with meditation, that we would heed your living word. God, would you be loud in our lives? Would you drown out with your gentle whisper? Would you drown out all the noise that's going on all around us all the time? And even as we take communion this morning, and we remember your body, and we remember your blood that was shed, and we remember your resurrection, Jesus. Would you infuse us with your quality of strength, your quality of courage? In Jesus' name. Hey, thanks for listening to the Life and Rhythm podcast. If you'd like to know more about Rhythm Community Church, you can go online at rhythm.community. Peace.